Sorry, just organizing myself here. It's lovely to be with you all again this morning and to share with you what is burning on my heart. Um, yeah, I'm just so grateful for this this time again, that we can be in fellowship with one another, spending time together, worshiping the Lord together in person, um, is a great treasure. It's good to be here. It's good to have the Zoomers here as well. Um, better to have you with us than not. So, anyway, I'm going to pray quickly and then we will, we will carry on. Father, we thank you for your word, which is true. We pray, Lord, stir our faith. We ask that you would give us faith, eyes to see. We thank you that we can pray in that place of honesty and say, Lord, help us in our unbelief. Lord, increase our faith, just as your disciples did. And so we look to you this morning. We pray that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Quibus and Nadia and um, everyone. Okay, so... As you can see on the screen there, today we are looking at the New Covenant, Part 2. So, understand that last week, I don't have piercing voices like Jacques and Diabia, and I speak a bit softer, so the recording was apparently quite average, um, and you're not likely to get much from it, unless you have supersonic hearing and powers of mumbling interpretation like Sarah has. Um <laughs> But I think what I'll do is, is just give a, a, a quick recap. As I mentioned last week, the Scripture pretty much lays it out. When you put it next to one another, the Scripture lays it out for you. So um, I think the next slide is a recap of last week. Um, and if you want, you can just take a picture of those Scriptures and, and go to them and, and read them in your, in your own quiet time. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm, can everyone see that? I'll read it anyway. Um, so what we saw last week, um, the summary of part one, if you like, was that we looked at um, scriptures in Luke. We looked at Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, this is my, the blood of, my, of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you, and this is the new covenant. And we saw Paul also talking about in Corinthians being um, made a minister of the new covenant by the Lord. So reasonable deduction is that there must have been an old covenant. If they're talking about the new one, there must have been an old one. And so we looked at the old one in um, in the Old Testament, and the scriptures that we traced there were in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Um, and we briefly looked at wh- what was the Old Covenant. Um, maybe just for the benefit of today, a covenant is, is without getting into the, all the technical things about it, is a very sincere, deep commitment. The closest picture we have is marriage. Okay. You're not married one day and then the next day when you don't feel like it, you're not anymore. It is for life till death do us part in sickness and in health. No matter what the waters look like on this boat, we are in this boat together. Okay, so that is covenant. So God made a covenant with Israel when he delivered them from Egypt. And a covenant is about relationship. It is a commitment from between two parties. And so God's covenant was with Israel when he delivered them out of Egypt. And um, we looked at the mediation and the nature of that covenant. So um, there are terms to a covenant, and, and God gave Moses the law. Basically, um, it was sort of like the framework for how Israel was to relate to God. And there were whole th- and it dealt with sin, and it dealt with forgiveness of sins, and how you draw near to God, and, and all sorts of things like that that we won't have go into now. Um, but we saw that the mediation was God then Moses and the priests, and then the people. So there was a definite distance between the people and God. And Moses and the other priests through the history of Israel were the mediators of that covenant. And then we took a brief look at Israel's history under the Old Covenant. We saw that in many ways the whole Old Testament um, is, is, is the, and the work of the prophets was to call people back to the heart of God. So they had this covenant, but generally Israel either completely abandoned the law and did whatever they liked, and then the prophet would call out to them and say, no, return to the Lord. Or, in other instances, Israel perfectly kept the law and the sacrifices and the feasts and all the outward 
things of the Lord, but their hearts were far from God. And the prophets, in the same way, called out to those people and said, get back to the Lord. The Lord longs to draw you to himself. So, um, <clears throat> and we saw what might surprise us in the New Testament is when it says that God finds fault with the Old Covenant. It says if the First Covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. But he, that's God, finds fault and says, I'm going to make a new covenant. So in the Old Testament, through Jeremiah and Isaiah and all of them, God points towards a new covenant. Um, and we'll read Hebrews in that just now. But essentially, if I can quickly go over it, again we looked at the mediation of that covenant and the nature of it. So we saw that God in the new covenant says, you shall no longer teach each one his neighbor as if there was a guru on top to tell the underling, this is how you know God. It says, they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, they will all know me. And so the mediation is different. It says, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He's the one who mediates between us and God and has mediated. When we looked at the nature of it, so the old covenant was very much external. God told the Israelites to write it on their doors and write it on the walls and talk about it and everything. It was an external application in many ways. But the new covenant, God says, I'm going to write that law on your hearts. I'm going to put it into your minds. And so it goes internal, and that's what we're sort of going to look at it today in a bit more depth. Really, it's a new nature that was required. So that's what God promises in the new covenant. And we just drew out some of the contrasts that Paul does in Corinthians, talking about the ministry of death as the old covenant, the ministry of life and righteousness. What has passed away and has no glory at all anymore compared to that which now has surpassing glory. So that's all in, in 2 Corinthians 3 there that he does that. And um, we started, at the end we spoke about life by the Spirit. So Paul being, um, he traces his journey, and we'll look at that in a bit more depth today. He says, okay, the old covenant has passed away. We have a new covenant. What is that like? And he talks about life by the power of the Spirit. Um, <clears throat> so if you put those scriptures next to one another and read through it, the Bible itself will explain it nicely to you. So today, I don't know what the next slide is. Is it Romans? Oh, no. Okay. So let's just quickly read those scriptures. We can go to that one from Luke. Um, this is what we looked at last week. And it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And the next scripture there, I think, is... Um, okay, we won't read that one now. Um, no, in fact, we will. Sorry. Um, so this is out of Hebrews. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and this is out of Jeremiah, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And then the last scripture there from Corinthians is what Paul is saying. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And in that, Paul gives us a clue to some of his later letters um, in Romans. Well, I actually don't know which one came first, but Romans goes into a lot of detail talking about the letter and how... Um, it all works. So that's one of the contrasts that Paul does. We had a covenant of the letter, and now we've got a covenant that's based on the Spirit. Um, 
So, so what we're going to look at today is, um, and again, I'm just going to say at the top, when Paul talks about this and he writes to the guys in, Col- in Colossia, he says, um, God has made me a minister to the Gentiles to explain or to, to expound upon what are the riches of the glory of the mystery God's salvation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I want to say here, uh, even if I had 10 hours this after today, we wouldn't get to the beginning and the end. It is a mystery. These things, it's almost threefold. They are riches and that they are glorious and it's a mystery as well. So I just want us to make peace with the fact that I'm not going to have an A to Z today, just like I did, didn't have one last week. And also I want to say to you, I think there may be a pressure sometimes to feel like oh, this is a, a weighty concept that I must have and then I move on. It's not like that. I know we generally do lots of courses and, and a lot of us, this phase of our life that we're in, we're doing courses to move on to something else and we do stuff in packages, knowledge and whatever, and then we quickly move on. But I want to say to you in my limited 32 odd years of life that in the scriptures are not like that. Okay, When I'm 80 years old, We'll probably be preaching the same thing, and we'll be exploring the depths of the same thing. Um, so I want to encourage you to not feel a burden today to, oh, I have to get this so that I don't get left behind. No, okay? We're exploring mysteries that are glorious and rich. So that will be our whole life's journey. So today um, I'm hoping to um, just put a few things out there that when we later on read our Bibles or spend time with the Lord, He opens more things to us, more things and more things. So that's just what I want to say to us at the start. So the tiny little thing that I'll be touching on today is um, is life by the Spirit and freedom. So much like, um, which and, and sorry, this is all part of the New Covenant, okay? So there's an aspect of how we relate to God now, what has been done by Christ on the cross and by His resurrection, the implications of that on our lives now as as God's children. So the thing I want to talk about is um, is freedom, in a way, a little bit, because I think you know Jacques spoke a few weeks ago about peace, and I, I think in many ways, much like he said there. Uh, kind of basic form of peace we might default to is that it's just the absence of conflict or pressure from the outside and so we think that's peace and if we have that we're happy if we don't have that we're like oh we don't have peace but as Jacques explained there God's peace I mean when God talks about peace and when we talk about peace as the world or or when the world talks about peace it's two different things they're actually not alike at all there might be characteristics that are you know sort of similar but Really, the depth of peace that God gives to us is very, very, very deep. In much the same way, I believe freedom that God gives to His children in Christ is is also so deep. And um, we had an elders weekend sort of at the start of the year, and and one of the things that I took from that when we were praying together the one time was, um, well, not just once, we didn't only pray once, we prayed a few times. (laughs) You'll be glad to know we sort of prayed on the elders weekend at least. But the one impression that I got was, and this will help you to remember, it, is that God's freedom is holy. And so to explain that, um, much like I spoke about peace now, God's, God's freedom is, is completely other. You know, the world's understanding of freedom may be absence of constraint. You know, we might think of level one lockdown as freedom, you know. And those are the kind of really, I don't want to use the word pathetic, but like... Um, Compared to the freedom of God, it's, you're not even scratching the surface there. And so, as believers, I think maybe we would default. We would think, yeah, well, no, we have freedom because I can go to the shops whenever I want or I can, I can come to church whenever I want type of thing. Yes, those are freedoms, but the freedom that God has given us as believers is a much deeper one. And so, in that sense, it is holy. It is completely other to any of the freedoms that the world would raise its fist in the air for or that we would cry out for in general terms. On the other hand, I also want to say that God's freedom is holy in the sense that it is not to be uh, treated as profane, if I can put it like that. So all these things that we're speaking about are, are things of inheritance. 
Having become a child of God, you have an inheritance. And what is in that inheritance? It's freedom, peace, all these things that God gives us that go deep. Um, but the freedom that was bought for us, that is ours as children of God, um, is, is such a precious gift from God. It is, came at great cost to himself, and he delights to give it to us, and he delights to have us experience it. And so it is holy in that sense that if we are to kind of look at it or treat it as, ah, you know, I'm actually fine, I've got enough freedom, and you don't lay hold of it, I want to say, no, we should not do that. Um, and and the, the illustration that we have from the Old Testament was Esau. Esau was the firstborn. With that came inheritance and birthright. And that, again, there's a lot of stuff we can say about that, but it was weighty. To be the firstborn and have that inheritance was very, very weighty. But what Esau did, he saw, oh, I'm hungry. And managed, his brother managed to convince him just to give him his birthright for a bowl of food. And in that sense, Scripture says that Esau was, was blasphemous in a way. He, he treated his inheritance as profane. And he just went for what was right in front of him, and that was good enough for him in the moment, and he, he forewent his inheritance. Um, so I just want to leave that with us. It, it's, it's glorious. God's freedom is, is so liberating, and he wants us to pay attention to it and not to neglect it. So we're going to see we get where we get today, but I think we're going to start off in Romans 3, chapter 20. Ah, uh, no, Romans chapter 3, verse 20 to 22a. And um, I just want to, the backdrop to this, Paul, a lot of Paul's letters are to Jews. Um, and he's talking to them about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so the Romans, if you've read it, we will pick up, it's a lot about the law, about the Mosaic law. Um, and later we'll talk a little bit about about that but it says he says to them for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe so the things that I want us to, to understand there and see there, you know, the first line, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. It's really as simple as that. There is no record of obedience that you can have out of your own that will make you right with God. It is impossible. Um, that was what the Jews had. They thought they were very righteous because they kept most of the law and they had loopholes for the rest. But Paul is saying... <laughs> Paul is saying there is no there is no resume that you can put before God of your own deeds that will make you righteous before him so simple as that almost um, and then he says since through the law comes knowledge of sin and that's what Paul expounds upon in Romans 7 and we'll look at that as well and he says but now and so I want us to think of the old covenant and the new covenant there was the old covenant but now there is the new covenant. There's something else. And that's Paul's always talking to us and saying, look at what has happened now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And that's very interesting. It's, it's a righteousness. It's God's righteousness in, 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 in what he did on the cross. And he gives us righteousness, but it is apart from the law. It's not derived from the law. It's not dependent on the law. It's not a supplementary aspect to the law for us to now. We try and walk in both. He's saying it's completely other. It's a new gift. It's new. The oldest has passed away. And then one might rightly ask, well, what then of the law? Which Paul asks in Romans and answers himself a couple of times. But here we can see the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So all of the Old Testament and the law points to the fact that people cannot be righteous out of their own steam. God must give them righteousness. And, and, and things are going to change. God gives you righteousness and he gives you grace to change. Um, and it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So in a way you can think of it like Paul's whole message to the Romans and in his other letters is that the law cannot give you righteousness. If the law stands there as a standard, you can never meet it to then receive righteousness. Similarly, 
Paul also goes on to say, if, even if you were to see that as minus one, if you had to see, for, let's just make it binary for now, but if, if you had to think of, I don't have any righteousness as minus one, and then having righteousness as zero, Paul is saying the law will not get you from minus one to zero. The law cannot, you cannot do the law and get there. God has to take you there. He gives you that. He takes you from minus one to zero. It's, it's not a perfect analogy, but I hope it's helpful. Um, and then if you, what if, if you have to think about, okay, so now I'm made righteous in God's sight, but, I mean, my life doesn't look very righteous. I still struggle with a lot of things. I still flare up in anger or whatever it is in your life. We are all very aware of the fact that um, we sin. You know, there's a problem if we think we never sin, because that's like self-righteousness. Um, but we struggle with that problem. And what Paul is saying, if you have to think of, okay, becoming righteous, becoming like God in character and, and more godly as plus one, Paul is saying the law also cannot make you righteous. It cannot give you righteousness, and then after that it also cannot make you righteous. Subscribing to a law by the power of your flesh cannot make you righteous. Even if you trusted God for forgiveness to, to, to be in his presence, to then after that go and say, okay, well now I'm going to do the law and now I'm going to become more like God. God is saying no. Through scripture he's saying the law will not give you righteousness and it will not make you righteousness no matter how hard you try. Um, and so the problem with that is not the law. Scripture says that the law is good and perfect, and Paul himself says it because the Jews came to him and then said, oh, so you're saying the law is rubbish or the law is bad? And he says, no, the problem with the law, the problem with that whole system was not the law. The problem is our flesh. And then he details in Romans 7, which we'll get to just now, just what happens when you are an unregenerate human being met with the holy law of God. You are incapable of meeting it. Okay, but before we get there, I want to read us to read in Romans, oh, sorry, Philippians 3, verse 1 to 11. Um, and so, okay, so Philippians 3, Paul is speaking and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Next slide there. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So many of us might be familiar with the scripture, um, especially where Paul says, I counted all things as lost, and maybe instinctively we get a bit nervous because we're like, oh, like my car or a house or my job or whatever, and those things may be part of what you let go. But what Paul is primarily speaking to them about yeah, is, is the standing that he had under the old covenant. Um, he said, you know, if, if anyone was a good example under the old covenant of being righteous, I was the, pretty much the best example that there was, that there is. Um, but I've counted that as rubbish. He says, compared to the righteousness that Christ gives, I, I, I forsake those things. They are less than rubbish to me. Whatever, whatever resume he had or however he propped himself up in confidence that he was right with God and he was a great servant of God, Whatever he had, Jesus, I believe when Jesus met him on the road <clears throat> to Damascus, that kind of all just fell away. Paul is saying, look, Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, as someone who has been there, 
There is, there is no option but the righteousness of Christ. You cannot hold on to these other things. Um, and I, I, hope it's, I hope you guys are with me. I don't know if there are any... Um, I get quite passionate about this because I am a self-confessed uh, recovering legalist. I don't know if there are any others here, but um, I think I'm instinctively very legalistic. Maybe a little side story. When I became a Christian at school, one of the first things I did, I became almost like Paul, they're like really zealous about the law of God, you know, um, to the point where I saw my hit the other guys in the hostel who weren't conforming, which is obviously not very godly and not exactly the life by the spirit, but um, I think, so if there, I don't know if there are others out there, but, but legalism can be a real trap for us because it's easy to understand. Everyone can understand legalism. Everyone can understand, here's a measure, I meet that measure, everything is fine. Okay. But it's, a, it's actually a tyranny if we are honest with ourselves. Um, so Paul says he has no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh to be made righteous before God, and it wouldn't make sense if he then had confidence in the flesh afterwards to make himself more righteous. He says, I have no confidence in the flesh. The flesh will not take you there. The flesh cannot bring about spiritual fruit. If you think about it, many times we think, oh, I want to be more patient. And we make a law for ourselves. I will be more patient. I will, if only I can do this, the fruit will come. But if, so long as you are trusting in your flesh, you will not bear that spiritual fruit. Okay, so that is the main point of today. Um, and Paul gives another clue that we'll, that, we'll, that we'll look at. And he says, he counts those things all as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And the power of his resurrection. So we're going to look at in Romans and 6 and 7 some really powerful um, biblical truth to what happens. When you become born again, when you are a believer, when you are reconciled to God, stuff really changes. Whether we know it, or, Sometimes we don't always know it. And that's why Paul writes it to them because they also didn't know it. And he says, do you not know? Reckon yourselves therefore. Um, okay. So, again, as I said, we know legalisms. Has anybody, I'd be very surprised if there was no one here who has felt the weight of failing to meet a requirement. You know, whether it's your walk with God and you're like, man, you hate sin, you hate that you do this. And you say, you almost vow, I will not do this. Or you search far and wide and you think, if I just put this in place and I put this in place, like, I will not do it. But sometimes you fail. And <clears throat> the, the law actually delivers a, a crushing blow to our egos in a good way. If, if we can see Jesus in that moment, we get saved. We experience the salvation of Christ. Um, and so I know for myself in my life, I've walked with that a lot of times. You just have this complete sense of failure all the time at not meeting the standard. And, and actually, even as Christians, as charismatic Christians, we can like bravely and boldly talk about how free we are from Mosaic law, but we've actually made a whole lot of other new laws and we've put them on people and put them on ourselves and we fail to meet those as well. And so I'm going to speak about it a bit more just now, but that whole principle of living by a law and trying to fulfill it is what leads to death. So... I think let's quickly just read through Romans 6. So much like last week, we're just reading lots of scripture together. Um, but Romans 6 contains some very, very powerful truth for us to, to know and understand. Okay. Is that the start of Romans 6? Really? What shall we say then? Do you have that one? Okay, I'll just start. You can just listen to me so long, but what shall we say then? Okay. <laughs> okay, so Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And there's some stuff that honestly sometimes went over my head in previous years. I didn't understand what what was being said there, but I, will, I call these baptismal realities. Um, and and just you can read it in the in the study Bible. Aubrey lent me, but um. Paul's talking, making a reference to baptism here, and it is first and foremost a baptism into Christ. Okay, so Scripture talks about baptism into Christ. That time, that moment, or when you come to Christ and you say, "Lord, forgive my sins, clothe me with Your righteousness. I trust in You. I trust that You forgive my sins. I trust in Your work on the cross, and you put your faith in Him." As we learned last week, you rely on Him. You don't just believe that He exists or that He did that. Because the demons also do that. But you trust him. You entrust your life to him. Scripture talks about that being baptized into Christ. Now, we do do baptism in water, okay? But the realities and these powerful truths that Paul is talking about here are not magically brought about by going underwater and coming out again. That is a very powerful, powerful symbol for us. As with a lot of things in Scripture, when... Just like, you know, fasting, if there's no faith there, it's really just a hunger strike. And so not eating food is not magical in and of itself. Okay, but when you mix these these outward things with faith, they're very powerful. And it's the same with baptism. When you go under the waters, you come up again, you are paralleling in many ways the things that we just read. Um, and it's a very powerful symbol when it's mixed with faith and sincerity of heart. But what Paul is talking about here yeah, is a reality that's happened when you place your faith in Christ. And what he's really doing is, is he's saying that there is a parallel between what Jesus underwent and what happened has happened in our lives. He's saying Jesus was delivered up to death, paid the penalty for our sin, and then he died. Okay, Then he dealt with sin. And then Jesus came alive again, was resurrected, and in our lives to God, he's alive. Paul is saying, having been put in Christ, having come to faith in Christ, you are now, you are in Christ. And so the reality of his life and how he overcame sin and how he now you know, lives in the glory of resurrection life, that, that same thing is true for you. We also underwent a death. By virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, we've also undergone that death. By virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, we have also come alive again. Okay, so Paul is saying there, sin shall no longer have dominion over you. You have actually died to sin. And that is something for us to understand by faith and to believe by faith. And Paul is saying, sin shall have no more dominion over you, for you're no longer under law but under grace. So as much as the Father raised Jesus, he raises us. Our old self is crucified already. By virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, it is crucified already, and we are now no longer slaves of sin. As we sit here as believers in Christ, we are not slaves of sin. 
today you are not a slave of sin. And we live in the newness of life that Christ also had, and that is by the power of his spirit. Um, and Paul is saying, do you not know? Therefore, consider yourselves, reckon yourselves. It can be difficult to get our minds around it, but we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Um, and he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, is it law or grace? Do I have to be a legalist or do I have to just say anything goes? And through my life I've learned the gospel is something else. The gospel is not legalism or liberalism or whatever, or libertarianism. Or, it's not subscribing to a law or doing whatever you like. It's not a, that's a misunderstanding of grace. Like the gospel is completely other. Grace is God's empowerment. This was a little side tip for when you're reading scripture. When we talk about something, we'll say, oh, that's like amazing and awesome and so insane and radical, whatever. And we'll just throw in a whole bunch of words there to say the same thing. Okay, scripture doesn't do that. Scripture is very economical. When it says mercy and grace, it's talking about different things. It's not just more of words that are, in a general sense, something nice about God, okay? So, like when Hebrews says, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Mercy is typically, I understand it, for your forgiveness and grace to help in time of need. Grace is an empowerment. So the salvation of God is really a powerful recreation of yourself and a continued empowerment to live a righteous life that you must daily give yourself to. He says, sin will have no dominion over you for through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is saying the law has been dealt with. Basically what used to happen was that, and this is what Paul talks about in Romans 7, um, having a law, well before there was a law, sin lied, was latent almost. He said sin lies dead. He never thought of doing something bad until there was a commandment that said you shall not do that. And it kind of provoked a rebellion in him. I think all of us know that very well. Like I never used to walk my dog until lockdown said you can't walk your dog. Yeah, all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I want to walk my dog. <clears throat> so we are no longer under sin's dominion. Paul is stating it as a fact for us to consider and to understand. We are no longer under sin's dominion. Sin will always give it a good try though. It's as if before, sin in you plus a law and a commandment brought about a sea of rebellion. Okay, Your flesh was simply, you were powerless to, to not walk in sin. Sin had dominion over you. It was like a ruler that could had puppet strings attached to you and he, sin could dominate you. Paul is saying, Christ has dealt with those. You are no longer under the dominion of sin, but sin will we come back and give it give it a good try. Sin will always come come back to try and take dominion over you. And he's saying, Don't let it. Remember this and don't let it. Another way that he speaks about it is in um Romans seven <clears throat> to talk about the old covenant. He says the way he uses a marriage analogy and that we can quickly read um together. Or do you not know, brothers, again he's saying I'm telling you something that you should know. For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is only binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, he's, he's explaining a simple reality. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's what Christ has done is ours. And I, that's really what I want to say to us is sometimes we think, no, we have, to still, we have to still get that for there to be reality. But what Paul is talking about, yeah, it is a reality for you. 
you are no longer in a marriage relationship with you and sin and law and it's all this weird thing that just bears fruit for death. He says, no, you have, you've died. You are no longer under the old covenant. Christ died and therefore you have died. Okay, so now you're free from that. You're free from that relationship. He says, but now that you can be given to another, you can be married to another, to Christ. So it's very, it's, I want to say it's, there's a finality to what has happened. We might th- sometimes feel the tension and want to sometimes be legalistic and follow a law and, and feel great about that. And then sometimes, oh, say, oh, sorry, Lord. And then we're all about mercy and stuff. But Paul is saying there's been a clean, clean, clean break between what your sin used to do with the law and what you now have as a believer in Christ. You belong to Christ now. And this is just a crucial, it's a crucial death for us to understand that it has happened. And he says, we serve in the new way of the spirit and not of the written code. And so maybe I'll just touch on something here. He's a lot of the time he's talking about the Mosaic law, but, and we, as I mentioned earlier, we might not have a great awareness of the Mosaic law, so we might not think we're really under it, but we do have a great awareness of our own laws and we make a lot of our own laws. Um, something that Paul sort of talks about in other letters as the elementary principles of this world. And sometimes he says the law is the elementary principles of this world. And as I said earlier, everyone can understand legalism. Everyone understands a law-defined, a law-based relationship. Everyone has, has maybe even tried to do relationships like that. You know, but you said, therefore, or I said, and therefore. And it's a heavy sword to bear. So, and we've probably all cut a few people with it and we've probably been cut ourselves um, but everyone understands legalism you don't have to be a, someone who's familiar with the mosaic law to understand legalism and, and trying to be made right by a law and yeah I also want to just have a little side note and say whether we realize you know kind of the world view that we're in at the moment the world it's, very, it's a naturalistic world view it has in short deduced that we came here by a natural process and so God is not really part of the picture so mankind is then devoid of a moral law giver so man now the current view we try and make our own laws and so with as much as the world likes to proclaim freedom from you know God's judgment and the law and saying oh, God's not even real so we're free what intrinsically happens is that the world makes another law the world has to come up with its own system of righteousness. And I just want to say to us as believers, like having been made righteous in God's sight, I would have you free from like the world's dictates of righteousness. The world comes at us every day and says, no, this is righteousness. And it comes with a lot of weight and pressure to make you conform to this so that you can be counted righteous in the world's sight. But I want to say to you that that is an abominable righteousness. It's not even a righteousness. It is, it's, it's disgusting in many ways. Okay. Compared to God's righteousness, that is worth less than nothing. So I would just want to put that there and say I would have you free and not, not in any way submitted under a yoke of slavery that comes from the world. Because the really world that's in rebellion to God has no idea of righteousness, but I think it's, it does and will try and push it on top of you. But we have been made righteous in Christ and therefore free. So it's just a little side note. Um, so, so Paul says here, we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And here's where I say, I'm like scratching like the silver off of the first thing on the lottery ticket. Like, I see there's a great treasure here. I'm not about to give it to you in five points and say, this is it. But I want to bring it before us and say that we serve in the new way of the spirit. And it's so serious that we understand that we serve in the new way of the spirit. A lot of Paul's letters, almost all of them, are letters to um, Gentiles who have had a sincere faith in God, placed their faith in God, simplicity of faith, genuine devotion to God, and external people have come in and said, okay, but you need to add this, and you need to add this, and you need to add this. Paul is saying it is so serious that, that you do not return to the flesh like do not return to trying to be righteous by the power of your flesh and even he says in Galatians he says it very seriously he says 
You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. I don't know. I mean, when I was younger, sometimes I heard that, and it's ironic from like a very legalistic mouth saying, you know, you've sinned so badly that you've fallen away from grace. There's no more grace for you. Actually, that scripture, what Paul is really saying there, he's saying, no, if you want to be justified by the law and have your own righteousness, you have fallen away from grace. He says, you are estranged from Christ. Okay, so any of our own righteousness that we try and maintain before God really increases the distance between us and God to the point where you can become estranged from Him. And that is what the Jews were like under the Old Covenant as well. They're very much estranged from God. Um, <clears throat> so how do we live this life by the Spirit? So if, if, we're not, if we're not serving God by a written code or a letter or a legalistic structure or system, but we're serving Him by the Spirit, like how, how do we do that? And here I want to say, the moment we start saying, okay, here's the five-step walking by the spirit you've almost gone back to a written code okay serving we serve the living god a life that is continually more and more conformed to the image of christ is a life that is daily put before god again daily trusting in god daily unfortunately what i know i this has been my life's pattern sometimes and it's probably for many of us have an encounter with God and then we go and walk away and try and live our lives and we try and please God while he's watching and do everything right and then we fail and we run back to God and we say okay sorry and then there's a perpetual thing as if we're on a leash going away to try better and then come back but God would animate our lives by his spirit God would pour his spirit in and through us but that is a dailing it's almost like a cup you come and you bring yourself as a cup and then God fills you for that day and then the water gets drunk and the water gets used. The next day you must come back for that cup to be filled again. Um, and, and maybe to help us with that, I'll just, one of the last, second last scripture that we'll read is in Galatians 3. And this is now Paul talking to them, to the Galatians who wanted to go back to the law and back to, to legalism. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's not Romans. That is that is Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to 27. Okay. So Paul is saying to them, I actually wish we could have like a whole day to read Galatians together, but anyway, we probably won't have that. <laughs> but he's making these appeals to them. He says, having begun in the Spirit, would you now be perfected by the flesh? He's He's like so frustrated with them. He says... Your faith, your connection to God at the start was so genuine, so pure, and so beautiful, and now you want to smother it with the law. He says, having begun in the Spirit, why would you now turn back to the flesh? To the, and he says, the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world. Okay, so to help us, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there we see, okay, so we don't serve in the, in the old way of the letter of the written code, but we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Okay, who supplies the Spirit? He says, he who supplies the Spirit to you. Okay, so that is my encouragement to us, is, is that we would now break open into the freedom of the new covenant, freedom from the tyranny of a, of a legalistic system that you fail repeatedly and you embrace life by the power of the Spirit. You embrace resurrection, life, living and breathing and moving through you. God supplies that Spirit. Okay? You can't, you can't control it. You can't go get a hole like the Israelites did with the manna in the desert. Now you think, I'm going to need more for tomorrow, but I'd rather not wake up tomorrow and get some i'm just going to take enough for today and then tomorrow I'll, we'll, I'll be fine okay god supplies his spirit to you and you have to go to him all the time be before him all the time his spirit is in you i might sound crazy here but you know god's spirit is in you that's what scripture says and we need to, yet it says we must be continually filled we cannot control it or manipulate it or keep it in a bag for for later 
God supplies the Spirit, and then we must ask ourselves, does He do that because we've done everything right, or does He do it because we come with faith? That question is answered there. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, and it's interesting to reflect on the faith of Abraham. When Abraham was counted as righteous, it was when God said to him, you know, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And he said, okay, I believe you, God. And it says, that kind of heart response to what God says is what made Abraham righteous. Okay, And it's that same kind of response when God says, you are dead to sin. When he says, I've given you resurrection life, you say, okay, I believe you. And he fills you with his spirit. So we need to daily present ourselves, each day is giving ourselves afresh to God and allowing him to just breathe life into us. Okay, so the last scripture that I want to encourage us with It's in John 14, and it's Jesus' words to his disciples. Okay. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, or advocate, or counselor. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be or is in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I love, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And that is the mystery. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. He is in the Father. So being in Christ, my reconciliation to God is, is not, it's not temporary. It's not on one day and off the other. It is secure. It is stable. It is... It is a new reality that I'm in. So being in Christ, I am accepted in the beloved and God's unfailing love, his grace to empower me, to breathe life and fresh life into my life. It's an ever-present reality. It's there. It's not, it's not worked up by our performance. And he says, I will, he will be loved by my Father. God's love is there and Jesus manifests himself to us and so I think as we end I just want to encourage us to draw near to God with faith and maybe Quibus if we can sing uh, that uh, that old Matt Redman there again some of the whole verse I love those verses um, and I just want to give some yeah, yeah some time as we worship together and um, encourage you to if if Maybe you've never known God, or maybe you've always approached God based on your performance. You've always approached God based on what you've done right, or you've avoided God based on what you did wrong. I want to encourage you today. There's some people here. We're going to pray. You guys can stand with us so long. Um, And we can pray with you.